Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for joining and listening to Clean Capital's Experts Only Podcast. For folks in the room that aren't unfamiliar with the podcast, what we do is explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance, and talk a- across the industry about what's moving, what's happening, what the future of the markets look like. Uh, and it's a great dialogue. Uh, and I, for, for us at Clean Capital, a great way to sort of stay educated about where the industry is moving. So I'll be honest, this is our first uh, live recording of a podcast. So we'll see how this turns out, but we're pretty excited about it. Uh, for folks listening, we are live at Pace Nation Summit 2018 here in Denver, Colorado. You can expect a really fascinating conversation on the perspectives of PACE uh, from this really incredible panel. For those who are listening to the podcast and are unfamiliar with PACE, hopefully you in the room are pretty familiar with PACE, uh, but we did a, an earlier episode, so I challenge you to go to that first, uh, where I interviewed David and did a PACE 101 to help folks understand what's happening in the market. Uh, it's a great primer for this conversation. And just a level set, uh, property assessed clean energy, PACE is a financing mechanism that in, enables low-cost, long-term funding for energy efficiency, renewable energy, and water conservation projects. PACE financing is repaid through the assessment on the property tax bill, um, and depending on the local legislation, it can be used for commercial, nonprofit, for residential. Mostly in the room probably understand that. That's more for the folks online. Um, our panel today is going to talk about different perspectives, not so much on the policy side, but the way we approach it on PACE and how it relates to our goals. Also about how to engage uh, with policymakers so that we can get PACE into more jurisdictions and hopefully continue to grow the market. And then just a warning for our podcast listeners, this, is the, this episode is significantly longer than our normal episodes, so make sure you budget your time appropriately. You can find more episodes at cleancapital.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And I want to start off with a special thanks to the organizers who put incredible work in to make this happen. We're really excited about the, the conversation. And so let's get started. I'm going to ask each of the, the speakers to introduce themselves through a question as we're talking on this versus just reading bios. But I think for the folks in the room, our, our first speaker, Cisco, really needs no introduction, but he's the CEO of Renew Financial. Well, after growing up in the mountains near uh, Yosemite National Park where he raised pigs, goats, and chickens, uh, Cisco is also a licensed pilot, and I learned last night the chairman of a Little League Baseball League, uh, which is fantastic. But for those in the room, you know him as a key leader in the industry. So, Cisco, you know, you've seen the progression of PACE from being an idea on the back of a napkin to an industry that, that is growing quarter after quarter and thriving in a new way. So, for the folks in the audience, can you talk a little bit about, um, a little bit about that history, some perspective on that history, and then why today? Why are things really starting to click now? Well, thanks. It's, uh, first, it's, it's great to be here. It's great to be on... Uh... Uh, on stage with uh, with these folks, this is a, it's kind of a dream come true after a lot of years, and so I'm I'm really honored to be here. I was reminded uh, there are parts of the pace story that I only tell over beer. So we're gonna it's a morning session here. I'm gonna uh, some of us probably had too much beer last night, so I, I will stick to some of the other parts. Uh, but it, I was reminded yesterday a California Energy Commissioner uh, recently said pace is the single most successful energy retrofit program in the history of the state of California. And that, while it sounds great, and I'm super proud of and part of that, it does make you go back and think about when that wasn't the case. And and this really all started for me, um, and for all of us, with a hole in the ground. So back when I was at the city of Berkeley, California, we were trying to help a neighborhood who was putting all their poles and wires underground, on the underground utility district. It's about the most boring thing you can do in government, is to dig a hole and put wires in it. and so that process of, of a neighbor choosing to do this voluntarily, of choosing how to pay for it, of the city making this an option to them, and then these homeowners taking assessments on to pay for this project that they wanted to get done, really got me thinking about how we could use that tool potentially to solve some other challenges we have, notably the climate and energy issue. So for me, a lot of this started around climate. Um, so that very, very beginning, I think, kind of starts off the the story of PACE and how we built on something. And it's really important then as we go through the years, and I I won't go through the years, but 
to say what Give us a few years. Give us a few years. What made Pace <laughs> different from the beginning that, that made it possible to be here, that made it true that all of us would be here from our different backgrounds, and that, uh, you know, that a, an energy commissioner would say something, uh, you know, sort of big and bold like that? Right. I think a couple of things. First, local government exists to solve problems, and as much as politics has become difficult, there's a place where a lot of stuff still gets done. Uh, day in and day out, people fill potholes and turn on lights and do these things. And I think local government's a quarter of that, and it's really not been the partisan place that a lot of other government things. And so you're allowed to kind of try new things. The second about this that made Pace really important over the years, a real difference, I think it's down to um, Palm Desert, California. So my work in Berkeley uh, started then the folks in Palm Desert, California to get going on it, their own PACE program. And in fact, Berkeley's and Palm Desert started at about the same time. Palm Desert is as conservative as Berkeley is liberal. It's as hot as Berkeley is temperate. They are literally, except that they're in the same state, they are nearly uh, opposite places. But PACE solved a problem for them too, which was very high energy costs, particularly in the hot summers in the desert. And they used PACE, even, it was even more popular there than it was in Berkeley, where I don't think anybody in Palm Desert was thinking, I'm trying to solve a climate problem. No, they were trying to solve a, how's my home gonna be comfortable and not super expensive problem. And that notion that we're just trying to solve a problem with PACE and that that problem doesn't have to be ideological, it's really simpler than that. It's kind of, it seems simple, that's a breakthrough, right? right. Energy policy to sort of put aside the rest of the motivations and just focus on how we're helping people solve a problem. That I think has been core to PACE all along. And, giving people individual choice, not putting taxpayer dollars to work, helping them solve problems. And in the end, you know, behind the scenes, I feel like we're making a real difference on climate. But that's not what motivated a lot of folks to start programs or to do projects. And I really feel like the history of PACE is about figuring out how to do that. When, you were, when this was starting, was there, you were a champion in Berkeley making this happen. Was there a champion in Palm Desert that was driving this and were you guys communicating? There, there was, and, and you know, it's, it's funny. I, I'm reminded a couple years later, and this is one of those stories that um, uh, probably shouldn't be told out loud, but <laughs> I went to Texas to, uh, they had a, 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 an event and they wanted me to speak about Pace in Texas. This is probably 2009. And it reminds me about Palm Desert, because Palm Desert, amazing folks, great folks, I got to be friends with them. They cannot say out loud that Berkeley had anything to do with the beginning of this program. <laughs> when I went to Texas to give this talk, right before it, there's like hundreds of people, and they're like, okay, so what are you gonna talk about? I'm like, well, let's talk about the Berkeley story. And they're like, yeah, me. <laughs> Not so much on the Berkeley. I'm like, well, it's fine. I mean, California, there's a lot of great stories. And they're like, ooh, yeah, maybe not so much on the California. I'm like, well, this is gonna be kind of a short conversation, then, I guess, but all right. It doesn't, you know, and so my point on that is they're great. They did amazing work. They figured out a bunch of stuff that I didn't figure out. Yeah. Um, they didn't want to talk about Berkeley. That's fine. And, and I think when Rick Perry signed PACE legislation in Texas, he didn't want to talk about Berkeley either. That's fine, too. Right. It was solving a problem, and it really shouldn't matter uh, where it came from. And, and it's rare that we actually get past where things came from and actually just work on solving problems. So I do think uh, us sort of all taking the back seat to uh, fame and glory and just letting people go out there and be a, you know, mothers and fathers to a thousand pace programs is, has been a huge help. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I asked this, and we'll talk more about this uh, in the conversation later, is, you know, with pace and, and local programs, you know, many times they'll have a local champion but need advocates to come in and help build that support, and you need to build it in a way that messages to that community, right? Because Palm Desert's messaging will be completely different than, than sure. Berkeley's messaging. So the, the next, so for Genevieve Sherman, she's the head of new markets and partnership at Greenworks Lending. Uh, Genevieve decided to get into public-private partnerships for financing sustainable infrastructure after working at the planning, the planning department in South Africa's western region. I have a thousand questions about that, but we're not gonna go there. And where she witnessed firsthand the tough investment decisions the government's face when building for climate change. So going from South Africa, you ended up going to Connecticut, similar places, and you started working at the Green Bank on the commercial case PACE program, and it grew to be the fastest in the nation, right? So can you describe a little bit about commercial PACE, but also in your perspective from the Green Bank, you know, how did you begin to implement this policy, overcome these challenges, and then overcome the obstacles that um, so that commercial customers begin to trust this new program yeah. as a group. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, since I'm sitting right next to Cisco, you all know that um, the, the Green Bank did not invent PACE or commercial PACE by any stretch of the imagination. We were one of the actually much later states um, to start a commercial PACE program. And we always liked to say we had the you know, 28th state advantage um, because there were a lot of early attempts and ideas that we had the opportunity to observe and say, um, how can we improve on this? But when we launched our program in 2012, uh, there were several commercial PACE programs around the country, and most of them were focusing on trying to fund a first project. So commercial PACE was very much a sort of boutique, uh, sort of esoteric, structured finance opportunity or option right. for a building owner. And there were a lot of challenges on the credit underwriting and the capital markets side for, well, what, what is commercial PACE as a financial asset class? And who really is going to use it? And who really is going to buy it? And the Connecticut Green Bank had a very interesting mission as a governmental agency, um, speaking of things that local government can do. We were tasked with trying to find new ways to bring private capital into infrastructure and buildings and to move away from subsidies and rebates. Right. Um, so that was our goal, and we needed to find ways to raise private capital and put it to work. And when we looked at PACE on paper, we said, wow, this is a really great idea, and this is a really great way to not spend taxpayer dollars and to not use our bonding capacity, and we really should be able to raise private capital into this structure. So that was always our vision, and we made some decisions to innovate on commercial pace in a way that we thought could really start to scale uh, the market. Um, there are a lot of different things we did, but I think there were three pretty important ones. Um, the first is that we took PACE from a local program, from municipal to state, um, which at the time was quite innovative. Um, Connecticut is, of course, a small state. It's probably the size of the Bay Area in California. Um, but it is a state, and it's comprised of almost 200 individual tax collectors. And we knew that we needed to simplify the public side of the public-private partnership so we took a lot of the administrative sort of burden, if you will, of operationalizing PACE. We took it away from the cities and we moved it to the level of the state. And that made it much easier for municipalities to just kind of opt in, right. but allow the economic development tool to sort of be made available without them having to staff it and put time and resources in. That's great. A second thing we did was we brought the mortgage banking industry to the table. Um, this was really important for us. We wanted commercial banks in Connecticut in particular to actually get involved in the Connecticut Green Bank. We wanted them to put their capital to work in solar loans and solar leases and so on and so forth. So we needed them to be supportive of commercial pace and we, uh, we found a way to do that through things like mandatory consent of mortgage lenders, non-acceleration of PACE loans, but non-extinguishment of PACE loans. So we did some working out of what that product needed to look like, and it made both the mortgage banks and the PACE investment community safer and more secure. And the last thing that we did was we, we started pooling commercial PACE loans. And this was a, a big innovation, which is to say, every commercial building is kind of its own special snowflake. Right. Um, so unlike homes, where there are many standard metrics for credit underwriting for homes. There are databases. There are decades and decades of analysis on what is a safe bet in terms of investing in a home. Um, that does not exist for the vast majority of commercial building types. You know, we're talking everything from churches, YMCAs, big shopping centers, little strip centers, office buildings, hotels. So we needed to start bringing all of these commercial properties together in a portfolio approach. And that was really the beginning of, I think, the capital markets and investment community having an opportunity to kind of look under the hood right. of what a portfolio sort of commercial pace asset looks like. And I think the industry really took off from that point. Is that what led that work? So your partners at, at Greenworks Lending, you guys spun out of the Green Bank. Can you talk a little bit about that process and what motivated you to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we spun out a company, it's called Greenworks Lending, in 2015. It really sort of got going in 2016. But we had seen the Connecticut PACE program really rapidly kind of start to, to grow. Um, we did 
I, I know some of the Green Bay folks are in the audience, so I hope I get these numbers right still, but I think we did about $30 million in just our first year of operations, and that quickly grew to about $100 million after the second year of operations. And when we looked at you know, what our strengths were, but what the limits to growth were, um, we sort of added up those, those columns. There was more in the limits to growth than there was in our advantages being in a small public interest bank. And we knew that in order to really scale up and scale out, um, we had to spin out this company. But we very much um, you know, were able to incubate this idea within a public agency, and that is quite unique. Um, but we've replicated many of the strategies I've just mentioned on the capital market side within Greenworks. And we've been um, fortunate, but also we're very happy to see many of the states that have now either sort of rejiggered their PACE programs or started new ones. They have replicated in their own way, in their own local way, a lot of the features of the Connecticut program. So right. not every state has a green bank, but many states have made an effort to have a statewide program for it to be standardized, for there to be a single low-cost administrator, and to basically open up a commercial PACE sort of marketplace in the way that Connecticut was able to do. And that has helped Greenworks with its mission of scaling up and scaling out the, the lending side of commercial PACE. Yeah, it definitely brings efficiency through the whole process, right? So, so our next two speakers, I met for the first time in Washington, D.C., uh, I was invited to speak to a group of young conservatives who had come to Washington to talk about clean energy and climate change, and I wanted to speak about my, my background as in the military and what we were doing in the military for clean energy, and I was absolutely blown away by the, sorry for the pun, but the energy in the room of uh, this, this group of conservatives who, who for me, um, you know, I, I never envisioned were coming in to be champions, uh, and I was completely wrong. Uh, because of the leadership of the, the next two speakers. And I'm going to start off with Michelle Combs, who's the founder and president of Young Conservatives for Energy Reform. So who would have thought that a, a very conservative Republican girl from South Carolina who worked for the late Senator Strom Thurmond, Lee, Lee Atwater, and former President George W. Bush would be heading up a group of young conservative advocates, uh, young conservatives advocating for clean energy. And especially at a time of such partisan divide here in our country, we're now beginning to see something like clean energy or PACE help bridge the divide. So, you know, Michelle, can you talk a little bit about what makes you a believer and why you founded found this organization and, and what you are all doing for the community? Sure. And thank you so much for inviting me here today. I'm thrilled to be here and be a, learn more about PACE. The more I learn about it, the more I like the system. So my, I have a personal story growing up in South Carolina, very involved with the Republican Party, former state chairman of the Young Republicans there. And clean energy never really, you know, I think it was because it was so partisan and the messengers at the time. So when I was pregnant, like the women in the room that have children, you cannot eat fish when you're pregnant. So I went to my doctor and I said, well, why can't I eat fish? And they said, because of the mercury. And I, so I said, well, where did the mercury come from? And I found out that it comes from coal fire plants that are all over the country. And I'm like, I cannot believe as a conservative, family-valued person that we're not more involved with clean energy. So I started... <laughs> so I started talking to some of my conservative friends, and they said, oh, you know, that's a liberal issue. And I said, no, it's not. It's a family issue. So I decided to talk to a hero of mine who is also my senator, Senator Lindsey Graham. So we went to see Senator Graham, and we talked to him about clean energy, and he loved it. He said, yes, this is something we need to work on, and I am behind you 100%, and I will work with you. My mother, who is the national president of the Christian Coalition, also got involved with this issue. So we started partnering with other groups around the country and started working on clean energy. And as I went around the country, I, just, I realized that the young conservatives of this country really get it. They grew up with the renewables. They grew up recycling. They grew up with not the stigmas of the older conservatives. So I know from being grassroots all my life, the way you get things done is you have to organize. So I organized grassroots. I organized the Young Conservatives for Energy Reform. And we have state chairmen all around the country. And we work with state legislatures. We work with the federal level. And we're really turning not just legislation, but we're turning the minds of people in the Republican Party and the conservatives. So I'm so excited to be here and to be a part of this and just see, you know, this is part of, we're all, I feel like we're all on the journey together. 
Michelle, for the, for the audience who come from a lot of those 50 different states, and how do they engage with those organizers in those states uh, and maybe help engage them, educate them on what they're doing in their state about PACE? How does my group? Or how can some of the audience engage your group? So we're, we're, we're organized in each state. We have about, actually about 35 states organized now. And we have state chairmen. And what we do is we work with the local municipalities. We work on the state house level. Last year, um, we worked with um, solar legislation in Nevada. We worked with, we're working with solar legislation today, matter of fact, right now in South Carolina. We work with different clean energy legislation all over. So if you want to get, we can, we have a very active website and we can get you involved with those people so you can work on a state level. Because the young people, like John said, they're excited, they're motivated. And we took a poll um, last year. We, and we polled a thousand young conservatives from around the country. And they actually see this as a value issue, which is very exciting to me. Because I grew up with value, the family issues and the marriage issue, but they see this as the new value issue of the young conservatives. What's the website? It's um, yc4er.org. yc4.org. Yeah. .org. Gotcha. Yes. Uh, that, that's great to hear, by the way. So I, I got into this issue as an Iraq veteran, and there, uh, got interested in the ideas of energy security and climate change through that national security lens. And there are now thousands uh, of veterans across the country engaged on these issues. The same thing. They see it as a value. They see it as a mission. Right, for, for them to continue. And I, I feel as we can begin to communicate more with those stories, and locally we can drive these critical policies forward to get hopefully the growth we need in the renewable space. So, so next I want to talk to, to Keith. And Keith, I want to make sure I get your last name right, but it's Keith Den Hollander, right? All right, who uh, is with the Christian Coalition. Keith grew up uh, working on his grandparents' farm outside of New Jersey on the border of uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Uh, his mom was one of eight. His dad was one of 12. I imagine the holidays were pretty crazy. Just a little bit. <laughs> so uh, talk for a little bit about you know, your experience growing up that got you in interested in this space. And you know, the, the Christian Coalition is not a group that many in the audience would traditionally tie to being clean energy advocates. So can you talk about uh, the progression of the organization and its thinking and how do we get to a place where today they're really helping to lead the fight? Absolutely. And again, thank you for, for having me here. Um, it's great to be here, uh, as Michelle said, learning more about PACE and, and learning more of the details. I did grow up in a big family. Energy efficiency came natural to us because I was one of seven children. So we had a household of nine. My uh, parents decided to carry on the tradition of their parents and have a big family. And I grew up in New Jersey, and if any of you are from that area, you know the cost of living there. So raising a family of nine, my dad wanted to send us all to private school, so we had, we had two choices, energy efficiency or summer vacation. If we weren't efficient with our energy, we weren't going on vacation that summer because it just wasn't going to be affordable. And so I had half the equation down already. I, I didn't have the clean energy aspect of it, but the efficiency side, my, my dad would follow us around the house and turn off lights and close windows that we left open and things that we weren't doing that we shouldn't have been doing. And. Uh, and I also watched as people like my grandparents tried to make a go of farming in a time when it was harder and harder to be a farmer. And I saw projects like wind farms come in and provide lease options to people um, to be able to lease their land. And so clean energy was creating opportunities as well for people to be involved in, in their farming business for a longer time than they would otherwise be able to do. And so, uh, fast forward um, to when I moved to Michigan after I got out of high school, and I spent eight years owning an insurance agency. So I was in the risk mitigation field. We did all of it, property, casualty, health, life, and so I was used to people trying to limit their risk. And uh, about five years ago, I responded to, I decided to get out of the insurance business because I wanted to move, and insurance is very local. If you move, your customers aren't going to follow you two hours away. And so I, I decided to leave the insurance business. And I responded to an ad from the Christian Coalition that they were looking for a state director for the state of Michigan. And uh, I met Michelle's mother, Roberta, who, who's just a wonderful woman and a wonderful mentor and a, a real visionary. And uh, I, I interviewed, and I, long story short, I, I got the job as a state director. And Roberta said to me, I want you to work on clean energy policy. And I was completely confused. What do you mean? I, I mean, 
that's what you're looking for a state director to work on clean energy. And she said, yeah, let me tell you about why. And she started talking about national security and she started talking about health implications and she started talking to me about the economics of what clean energy could mean for our country, hedging against fluctuating fossil fuel costs. And the more she talked to me about it, the more it made perfect sense. And I really was able to catch her vision and say, yeah, this makes sense. And so we started out working on state policy, trying to increase Michigan's portfolio standard from 10% to 15%, increasing our energy efficiency standards, and doing it in a state that had a Republican governor, a Republican legislature, completely controlled by Republican rule. And this was something that, to my knowledge, had never been done before. And I met with, John was talking about, about the military aspect of this, I met with a admiral named Lee Gunn, um, and he came in to speak about clean energy. And he said something to me that really resonated with me. He said, I want you to think about the Kuwait war. We went over there, they cut off four million barrels of oil a day. The price of gasoline in the United States doubled. It was a global, gasoline's globally traded commodity, and we can't control the price here. Even though we have plenty of it, we can't control the price because when, when there's disruption in the rest of the world, it affects our prices here. He said, imagine what would happen if Iran closed the Strait of Hormuz and cut off 16 million barrels a day, and suddenly the price of gasoline went not double, but four times. Our entire United States economy would collapse within 30 days, according to the Military Advisory Board's risk assessment. He said, the only way we get out from under that is to make ourselves less dependent on globally traded resources like that as we have more electric vehicles, as things like that. We're not going to be so dependent on this. And then he took it, and he took it a step further, and he explained to me how that was going to impact our energy markets going forward on the electricity side. Coal plants are closing all across the country. No utility will tell you they're looking to open new coal plants today. It's just not feasible. We're replacing almost all of them with natural gas plants. Nuclear um, plants are struggling in a lot of places. Uh, there are organizations that have permits to build new nuclear and are not doing it because it's not cost effective. And so we're left with, with two options. We have natural gas plants and we have renewables. Well, natural gas is not globally priced today, but I believe it was the last year of the Obama administration we opened that up and said we, it was allowed to be exported. But our ports still aren't ready to export. We're retrofitting our ports to be able to export. And, and I'm sorry if, if many of you know this or not. I didn't know this at the time. And it really touched me as I listened to it. So once these ports are, are, are retrofitted and we can start exporting our natural gas, that's going to be a commodity that's going to become globally priced as well. And I started looking at the prices here in the United States compared to the prices around the world. Uh, if you look on FERC's website, the landed price for natural gas in January was somewhere around 278, I think. When I looked at what it was in Belgium, it was $10.80-some cents. There's a huge disparity between what we pay and what everyone else in the rest of the world was paying. Canada was the closest, and they were 7 something And so I thought, well, once we start trading this, what's going to happen? I mean, we're not probably going to go to 10 but what happens if we go from $2.70-some cents to 5 or $6? That's a doubling of the price of natural gas. And if we've closed our coal plants and we've, we're left dependent on natural gas, everyone's electric bill doubles too. And who can afford that? There's enough people struggling to pay their utilities as it is today. It's important that we address this now. We don't wait until down the road when that happens because it's gonna take time to increase our use of renewables. We've gotta build wind farms. We've gotta build utility scale solar. We've gotta put in residential solar. We've got all these projects to do. We've gotta increase efficiency so we use less, so our demand is less all these things to protect the American people from this burden that's going to come on them if the price of natural gas were to, were to increase that way. And so I realized it was a hedge. It fit right in with that hedging our risk that came from the insurance world. This is a way for us to hedge against those rising costs by using domestically controlled energy. And then when you look deeper into it, you saw, I saw the jobs that came with it. You know, local communities when they put up a wind farm and all the people who were taking their leases that they were signing, taking that money and going and spending it in their local community. I saw the solar projects doing the same thing, leasing land. I saw people becoming energy independent. And that's a very conservative principle. Conservatives by nature tend to want greater independence. And so it fit very well with our Christian Coalition member base to want to be energy independent. And so 
In order to make that a reality, we needed a fair system. So net metering suddenly came into play. And then I learned about PACE and how PACE was putting these tools into the hands of everybody. And I thought, this is really cool. And so um, it's been a journey for me. I spent two years in the state of Michigan. We did get the RPS increased from 10% to 15% through a Republican legislature and a Republican governor. We increased our energy efficiency requirements as well, so we have a combined goal of 35% now for the state by, I believe it's 2021. After two years as a state director, I became the regional director for the Midwest, and then this year I became the national field director. So now we're taking this, this program uh, all over the country. We have, we have programs in many states we are working on similar issues as well. That's amazing. Yeah. Quick round of applause. Yeah. That's awesome. Now that you're a national field director, you can do it in all 50 states, just, just get it done, right? <laughs> For folks that don't know, Keith mentioned the MAB, the Military Advisory Board. Uh, the Military Advisory Board is a group of retired four-star admirals and generals that now for well over a decade have been putting out some really fascinating thought leadership on climate change and energy security. And it actually built into the Pentagon the momentum for them to do significant programs to put in place. For instance, the Army, Navy, and Air Force all have one gigawatt renewable energy goals each, not total, each, that many are on track to, to achieve um, through third-party long-term financing. But many in the federal space, or more importantly, this current administration, the federal um, policy around clean energy is not as friendly, or I would even argue right now is not really totally defined, right? It's changing uh, sort of regularly with, with the president, but also you've got Secretary Perry, who in Texas signed PACE legislation, is, could be a champion on this, uh, but at the same time is bringing coal, coal uh, uh, empowering policies to try to get FERC to change, right? So it's a really interesting time at the federal space, but it's also a really interesting time for the the industry as a whole, because we've matured. Financing is coming in whole different buckets now that you know 10 years ago would not exist because people didn't know if solar panels even worked or what energy efficiency was. So Cisco, can you talk a little bit about the role in energy financing that, to help accelerate the country's position uh, to increase renewables, increasing energy efficiency, uh, but also maybe in, specifically on the federal level what the uncertainty of the policy footprint does for that, and you know, what's the role of the financing community to maybe even change that? Great, yeah. A lot's there. Let, uh, one of the things that's great about this, when I first started off on it, I got convinced the mayor we should work on this. He said, well, we don't have any money. Right. <laughs> so whatever you do, you gotta find other money. So immediately there was this notion that we needed private capital, but then I needed some money to even figure out how to do it. So I. I wrote a grant uh, proposal to the uh, then George W. Bush EPA, and they were, uh, I believe, the first, if not the, maybe the second, the only two grants that came to get that first program Berkeley going. So from the very beginning, we had some national sponsorship and assistance from a Republican administration to try and figure out how this tool could work. That, I think, set a really nice precedent. Hopefully, we'll continue that in the Trump administration as they sort of settle into things. Uh, but regardless, there was this notion there is not enough government money. Whether you're at a city or a state or federal government, the change, I mean, I think if you were, you know, uh, yesterday there was a lot of discussion about the fact that the retrofit of our housing stock, which is a crumbling infrastructure, if there ever was one, in order to be more energy efficient, to create energy independence, is gonna take trillions of dollars. And there isn't any possible scenario in which the government provides that money. The only way that works is if the private sector and private finance come in uh, in a public-private partnership, fully privately, to help people make these, cho these changes. So a lot of what we're trying to do with PACE now is to say that for 100 years, billions of dollars of low-cost capital went to build utility infrastructure. Uh, we now need to take some of those trillions of dollars and move it towards individual homes, individual businesses, individuals making choices to do infrastructure there. Because a lot of the infrastructure needs right now are back at the end of the grid, and we're gonna need the same large-scale capital, low-cost capital sources that built the grid to now build out the edge of it so that it is uh, energy independent. And I think when you look then at, um, you know, where can that, where, where, there's only one place where that capital comes from, and you can, like it or dislike it, or uh, uh, you know, we can we can uh, talk about the the financial crisis of the past, but ultimately it's in Wall Street. That is where that that capital exists. So 
a lot of what I did when I left the city to start Renew Financial was to figure out how do we connect that large scale, low cost capital into this market where it is so desperately needed and has never been before. And I think, again, a big part of the last 10 years has been the success we've had in, in getting that done. Uh, and in general, how the industry has now really made that connection. So I'm very excited about what private capital can do. I'm also certain that without it, we can't be successful. Right. Um, and then at the very end of that train, there's homeowners making individual choices uh, about what to do. And I think that's uh, you know, that individual choice empowered by uh, their local government, but funded by private sector capital is, is the best thing that we have going. When I was at the White House, we launched a public-private partnership program with the ESCOs and did uh, over $6 billion in energy performance contracts. Same idea. We did no upfront capital. We used uh, private capital to do it. We actually received a letter from 163 members of Congress, mostly Republicans. Your, your friend Lindsey Graham was on there. It was the most successful thing from the Obama administration that we had done from a bipartisan perspective because we were going out and achieving goals, partnering with the public sector, the private sector. And it, it, actively bringing down our energy use in the public sector. So well, where we, exactly, and, and I think we need to get back to that. I mean, I think there is, what this panel says, if nothing else, is that this, these solutions do not have to have a partisan uh, thing to them. And so as we look now at the a very partisan, we say, uh, what can we as PACE do? And the first is we got to support PACE in Washington through Congress, and, and there's been a lot of great bipartisan support. Uh, in the House and the Senate side uh, for this, you know, for this effort, and I think that's been very successful. As we've had some difficulties with mortgage bankers and others, yeah. but the other part of that then is it kind of uh, pace provides an immunity from federal policy, not totally, but it, it really says, look, we can, regardless of what is happening there today, we can still empower local folks, communities, to make choices that are going to make their homes safer, to make their energy more energy independent, to save energy. Uh, do something for the climate, do something for the environment. Those things, uh, PACE is one of those ones that can run even if we're not having for what I would consider a very, uh, a very helpful federal policy frame on these issues today. Um, it, it can continue, and I think that's one of the great things about us all being here is that it didn't change. PACE continued to grow even as the uh, things in Washington changed. And I think we're also providing an example that hopefully they can get behind and, and we can kind of uh, we can move past some of the partisan gridlock. It's not like there's, it's smooth sailing, right? I mean, there, there isn't an anti-pace effort being led by folks that, that, you know, as an industry, we have to fight to overcome, both at the federal level, uh, but as you mentioned, you know, most of the clean energy fights today are moving to the state level, right? Because of the, whether it be on RPSs, on pace, on the green banks, uh, on net metering, right? All these different policies are becoming state level fights. I think which is exciting for the, the industry, but it makes the role of many of you in the audience that much more important. So you can engage folks at the state level and tell your stories. Genevieve, you were at that state level in Connecticut, and now you're working across uh, a variety of them right now. Can you talk a little bit about you know, how to engage those states, sort of the roles in the states? And then we're also going to talk with Genevieve and Keith about how to go in and specifically start to message towards those more conservative states and how do we bring those conversations forward. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, certainly on the political side, Keith has a great deal of experience um, with these state battles. But, you know, I think the, the major challenges at the state level always are trying to make sure that we have all of the tools that all of the different stakeholders need all at the same time, right? So um, when changes are made, like increasing an RPS or if there is a PACE law that is passed, I know we have some folks on the real estate side here. There are you know, mandatory benchmarking and disclosure laws that are becoming more popular now from the city level that's moving up to the state. So um, everyone is impacted by these changes at the state level, and that could be the utility sector, um, real estate, labor, and so on and so forth. What is so critical is to remember um, why, <laughs> why we are creating these new laws, why we're increasing RPSs, and so on and so forth. and, and um, Cisco and Keith spoke so eloquently about those reasons. So what can be a challenge on the political front is when you get one thing to move, but then you don't get the other pieces of the puzzle you need right. to make sure that everyone is empowered to still um, sort of have economic prosperity out of these changes. So as we transition our infrastructure, our energy infrastructure, also our buildings, 
to be more energy efficient, to be more water efficient, to have renewable energy, um, we want to make sure that everyone is a winner and that there are not winners and losers. So it's really important to try to bring everyone along together. And what I've seen with PACE, um, I've been involved in supporting um, lobbying efforts. Um, we support legislators, we support stakeholder groups. When they're getting PACE legislation pulled together, is PACE is one of the very few state-level policies that really does create winners across all sectors of the economy um, because it's going to open up the opportunity for financial institutions to lend money. And to a great extent, that is Wall Street, but increasingly that is local banking institutions and Main Street banks, and they're getting involved in PACE. It opens up opportunity for workers. They now just have more financial resources to sell the products and services that they're out there doing already. It just makes it easier for them to renovate our buildings, and it creates more options um, for commercial property owners and managers, and it creates a new tool for economic development for local governments. So it really is this kind of like win, 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 and it is very complementary to other state initiatives or policies that might be happening more at the sort of utility um, energy sector. And, and what more can the industry, now that it's, it's maturing and growing, do to, to drive those, I think, critical conversations and fights and, and education at that level? Um, I, you know, each state is a little different. Yeah. <laughs> um, so these fights are happening in different places. But I think, um, actually, a lot of it gets to the utility sector. Um, it, it actually is not so much at the local level. We have to figure out how to really transform our entire electricity infrastructure and transit infrastructure to new technologies. And that is um, very much a question of a new business model for uh, everyone involved, <laughs> for utility companies, for energy um, generation companies, both natural gas plants, solar farms, wind farms, um, and for um, you know, the, the companies that own the wires and deliver us all the energy, and the buildings, the people, to Cisco's point, that are at the end of the circuit right. <laughs> are part of that infrastructure. And what is really going to drive this change, in, in my opinion, is if everyone can kind of look at the end result. And I think there are certain states that are much further along in that, for example, California, um, New York State, in saying, well, if we could all look 50 years into the future, what would that actually look like? Right. And it, it involves our existing grid, but it would, be, it would be renovated. We would have more um, real-time data and analytics and security infrastructure on our existing grid. Our grid would be plugged into new sources of energy, not just large solar farms, but also solar on homes. And we would have real-time information and new businesses, entrepreneurs, sort of growing up and jumping onto this grid and saying, well, we can provide services and we can add choice for consumers. I think there are a couple of states that have looked at that future and then they've tried to back out of it right. and say, well, what is the investment? What is the capital investment required to get us there? Um, what information about our grid do we need? What do we need consumers to know so that they can make informed choices about what energy they're purchasing and so on and so forth? And the laws that are getting us there are cobbled together. And it's a combination of um, renewable portfolio standards requiring utilities to actually map our grid infrastructure so we all know what's actually there so we can all plug in and do what is most economically efficient to bring us to that future. Um, so those are the types of laws we're going to have to see passed, but most states are kind of inching their way toward it because of the political realities of sort of who's winning and who's losing. So you've got to kind of get, you know, get an inch here and there until yeah. you, you build it up. So a lot of folks today, much smarter than I, have compared to what's happening to the power delivery system to what's happened to the telecommunications in, in the, the 1990s. We went from Ma Bell to distributed uh, cell towers to the, the uh, smartphones we have in our pockets today. That was driven a lot by federal legislation. There was a, a telecommunications act that broke up the Ma Bells and started that. We are not going to see that uh, come out of Congress no matter what parties in charge for a long time, I think, because of the stakeholders, which makes those state-level fights that much more important. 
And Keith, you're really helping to engage at those state level fights. One of the things you've done, uh, the Christian Coalition did, was help to lead a fight uh, against a, an anti-PACE initiative by ALEC. And for folks that don't know ALEC, ALEC's the American Legislative Exchange Council. It's mostly a conservative group of, of policymakers around the country. They come together uh, pretty regularly. ALEC has been known for really putting together framework legislation that you'll see pop up state after state after state because they get their uh, policymakers and, and local legislators uh, involved, educated, and then they'll literally take those documents and go and file them at the state level. So the fact that the Christian Coalition led a fight to stop an anti-PACE initiative was significant there. Can you talk a little bit about how you did that? I think, like with any fight, ultimately the fight comes down to relationships. Right. It's got to be relationships. And the work that we've done across the states, working on clean energy policy, educating lawmakers, really was the fertile ground that we sowed to be able to defeat that effort at ALEC. We, we learned about, so we're actually not members of ALEC. We were able to get in as a guest under someone else's really? membership. Uh, it's, it's fairly expensive to become a member of ALEC. Um, nonprofits have a little bit better rate, but you can easily, if you go to every meeting, you attend everything, you're going to spend $30,000, $40,000 a year being a member of ALEC and going to these meetings. And so... What does the membership gain to folks that are... Voting privileges. So you can, once you become a member, so membership allows you to attend the meeting, but if you actually want to sit on a committee, you have to also pay to join the committee. So I, I want to say to become a nonprofit member, it's maybe 3500 a year. And then for each committee you want to sit on, it's an additional $5,000 to have someone sit on that committee. So uh, you can spend a significant amount of money joining committees to be able to have a vote. Right. And the committees are made up of a combination of lawmakers and public sector um, uh, companies and, and individuals. And so if you want to have a, a vote on that committee, you have to join. And the resolutions come up before the committee. The committee either adapts them or doesn't adapt them, and then it gets sent out to the committee of the whole. So we learned that this, this resolution was kind of circulating through three different committees, tax committee, energy committee, and one other. I don't remember the the other committee that was involved, and that it was an attempt to basically condemn PACE and suggest that states you know, back out of their approval of PACE and go in the opposite direction. Do you have a sense of if you could say who was behind that, driving that, from a stakeholder perspective? My understanding from, from folks that were there was that the Edison Institute was quite involved and uh, some other similar organizations were right. kind of leading that battle. So we decided to actually go to this ALEC meeting, find, found a way to, to get uh, invited and be, attend as someone's guest, and started working the relationships we had built with the lawmakers there. And so we didn't need all of them, we just needed enough to stop the measure. And the way a measure works in committee is it has to pass both the legislator vote and a public sector vote. So there's two votes taken, one of the private companies, one of the legislators, and it has to pass both. And so. We had a decent showing among the, among the companies that were there. There was a decent number that had committed that they were opposed to this, but we were concerned about the legislators. So we started circulating amongst the legislators on the committee, speaking with them, saying, hey, remember we talked to you about clean energy. Remember why clean energy is such a good idea. Remember this is no longer a right versus left issue. It's a right versus wrong issue. And this is something that you need to support because this is putting creating greater access for people in your state to those clean energy resources they need. And if you, if you fight this, you're going to be moving in the wrong direction. You're moving backwards from what your constituents want. Our polling within the Christian Coalition shows consistently 70 to 80 percent for more clean energy amongst our, our members. The young conservatives, it's the same thing. Michelle was speaking about the results there, how supportive they are. You're going to get on the wrong side of your constituents if you go down this road. And so it wasn't that we were there giving them technical details to say, let us tell you all about how the intricate workings of PACE work and why you should, you should continue to embrace it. It was the relationships that had been built and the understanding that there's trust. And so I think that's the important lesson learned is that you can have all the knowledge, you can have facts on your side, you can have fact sheets. When you get down to a vote, you already have to have the relationship built. You can't wait until there's somebody trying to attack what you're doing to build the relationship and try and say, okay, I'm coming in now. I've got all these facts for you. I'm going to hand you this fact sheet. 
you should look at this and this should make you convince you that you need to change your mind. You need to have built those relationships over the years and you need to have built them person, personally so that when you go as an individual and you ask that legislator, don't vote for this, they go, okay, I know you, I trust you, I've met you before, I've, your information you've given me in the past has been good. And so it was really all relationships and having the right messenger there. There were clean energy companies there. There were several wind developers who were fighting. There were several companies that are represented here that were there fighting the, the battle. But you have to have the right messenger. And that was, the, I think, the key takeaway from that battle was when the right messenger's there to deliver the message, you can achieve the desired outcome. Yeah, that's interesting. I, Michelle, I want to come back to you for a second for a question. I'm going to open it up to the audience, I think, after this question. So if you've got one, please think about it. I know there's going to be mics circulating in the room. But before uh, my question to Michelle, and Michelle, I'm deviating a little from the script here, so I'm just warning you. Uh, raise your hand if you've been to a meeting with your local legislator. So for the folks who are listening to the podcast, about 40% of the room, maybe. Um, if there's anything to take away from this panel today, it's the need for us as the industry to go have these conversations and to engage through, through groups like Pace Nation to help those dialogues, because as Keith just said, it's those relationships when things get hot that make the difference right, and help drive. So Michelle, with that in mind, you, know, you, you guys are working, as you said, in states all over the country. You talk a little bit about uh, how folks that are engaging with perhaps a conservative lawmaker that, that may not uh, be as familiar with the issues, how would they go in and have that conversation you know, what's sort of the messaging that you have found that works in those dialogues? Well, I, I agree with Keith. I think it's, it's the building the relationships, but it's also the messenger. And I think it's a lack of knowledge, too, to these legislators. So what we do is we go in and we talk about clean energy and we talk about how important it is. It's amazing, though, um, especially when we're on Capitol Hill, that when we go in and see the Republican legislators, they're so excited that we're there. And they're so excited that they're talking about clean energy. I think that they really like our group because we give them the cover. You know, so like these maybe hard right conservatives can't really criticize them because they're, they're partnering with us. So when we go on the state level, we normally have a certain bill and we talk about the certain bill. For example, we went in last year to Nevada and talked about net metering. I mean, net metering is such a win-win, especially for the state of Nevada. But because of the utility companies and, the way, and what the argument that they were giving, they were a little confused. So once we, get, we went in and talked about how it's saving you know, consumers all this money, which are your constituents, which will help you. And so I think we, we, we go in from the, from the savings part. And, and we also use, I think, the um, national security issue a lot. We bring in um, generals and admirals when we go into different states and start talking about what Keith was talking about, about what's happening in the Middle East and sort of ease into this country. And our, our generals always says that the military wants to be faster, more efficient, you know, safer. And I think that that's sort of a, a way to, even the hardened, you know, like the, the real um, far-right conservatives. There was a story I have to tell y'all. Um, we were at a Christian coalition meeting and there was a climatologist there, a Republican climatologist, who was talking about um, climate change. And afterwards, he came up to this climatologist and he said, you know, I always thought this was a democratic conspiracy until I heard it from you. So, you know, there really is a messenger problem in this country, and I think that's what we're trying to ease the, the part on the Republican side and on the conservatives, that this is not a left-right issue, this is not a conservative, liberal issue, this is an American issue, and that's what we're, we're really trying to do. And this is a family issue. That's awesome. So you may not be comfortable talking about a specific bill. You know, you may not know what the Senate bill, whatever is, but I think when you work with advocacy groups, uh, they'll go in and be the experts. It's your stories that make the biggest difference, especially if you live locally within that district. I mean, it's really how you connect with the lawmakers. So I just want to open it up quickly before, I've got other questions, but I would love to give the audience a chance to ask. And um, please use the mic, because we are recording this as part of the podcast, so please introduce yourself. Any questions out there? We get a mic over here. Thank you. Look, uh, this question to Michelle and Keith. Thank you so much. Really appreciated your perspective. I had a question. Uh, my name is Paul Schwab. I work here at the National Renewable Energy, Colorado. Um, from the Republican side, I was 
uh, curious how a lot of um, perhaps the Tea Party side of the Republican Party is very interested in some clean energy policies and that it's, uh, you know, uh, freedom of, of choosing provider. How does, how does your experiences within the Republican Party is, uh, and fit with, as I said, like Tea Party constituents and is it, is it primarily Tea Party um, constituents that are interested in uh, clean energy or is it broader than just that sort of side of the Republican Party? And what are your experiences with that? For me, we don't, um, I, I, I've heard, you talking about the Tea Party? Is it what you yeah, there was a group, I think a Green Tea Party or something, but we, we work with all the groups. We work with um, just Republicans all around the country and different, different legislators. But that's, that, that's great what they're doing, the energy freedom. But we have done similar things all, all around the country. So we welcome any group, you know, that wants to work with the conservatives. And I think what you're asking is, is it, was it limited to the Tea Party? I think, Michelle, you're saying it's sort of across the whole... Yes, yes, they are. They're... Um, I know that they're in Florida or Georgia, but there are groups like that all over the country now that are um, partnering with us and um, with the Christian Coalition and different, you know, different groups. And I think Michelle maybe undersold us earlier when she talked about the net metering bill in Nevada. Her group was incredibly critical to overturning what was a terrible policy in Nevada uh, and it could have handcuffed solar growth there for, for decades. So the leadership that you all showed in those, in those conversations I think helped continue the growth that we're seeing in that state. Thank you. Other audience questions before up front here? Good morning. Stephanie Ma from Morningstar Credit Ratings. Thank you for a great podcast this morning. Uh, my question is, I'm curious to hear what the panelists think of Senate Bill 2155 that was passed by the, the House, um, the Senate uh, last week, which is proposing to include a provision uh, to have uh, pace, uh, resi pace fall under the Truth in Lending Act. Can anyone explain that? Yeah, so uh, I'll take a crack at it. Um, so l last year there was a, a, a bill introduced by Senator Cotton of Arkansas uh, to that would have uh, probably pretty much killed all pace programs, and, and it may not have been the intent, but that was certainly what it would have done. And uh, as the uh, that bill didn't go anywhere. But as the Senate banking reform bill um, started to move, uh, there's been a discussion about whether there should be a component in there to bring a, some level of federal oversight to PACE. And it's, it's sort of interesting because what you found then is this debate where more conservative, there are some more conservatives who are asking for the CFPB to be regulating a state financing program. And Democrats are like, whoa, too much. That's a, over, that's a federal overreach there, guys. Uh, and so... It, you know, I, there was a little bit of um, a, a little bit of ironing, which everybody enjoyed. But there was a lot of good discussion among senators and Senate staff on both sides of the aisle. And at the end of it, what came out of it was legislation which we can support. I, I can't speak to the broader bill. I can only this one little piece, which says uh, one of the, com uh, the the issues with uh, with pace that people want to see some consistent standards are is just making sure that we are consistently measuring people's ability to, to repay a PACE obligation. So that has been passed as part of the California legislation. Uh, and the, the notion in the bill is that uh, the CFPB should come up with some rules, uh, ultimately, that would create kind of a, an ability to pay rule for the country. There's a lot of complications. PACE, different laws in different states work very differently for PACE. So it's, it's, it's not a place where a, a a large federal presence would actually probably work, but there are certain really key places where I think it could play a productive, uh, where there could be some pr productive level setting. And, and this, this, uh, this bill is moving forward. It does have language that the industry is, is supportive of, comfortable with, um, and we'll see whether it gets, it gets going. But I think it was one of those great examples of a bunch of debate kind of, unfortunately, at the last minute, where in the end, Senator Crapo, uh, Senator Bennett was a great advocate of getting this done, came together, came up with Senator Warner with some good language, and uh, everybody said, okay, let's go forward together. Uh, and I'm, I'm, uh, I was proud that uh, we could have been part a participant in that discussion and that we got to a good, uh, at least a, a reasonably good outcome. What were the forces that behind Cotton's initiative? You know, I, I, it's always easy to sort of ascribe motives to people. I don't know. what You know, PACE is not particularly active in Arkansas. There's no residential PACE at all in Arkansas. So 
this wasn't coming from somebody who had a problem in Arkansas. And, and you know, the mortgage bankers have certainly claimed credit for it. Uh, so I, I would go ahead and give them the credit for getting that right. um, But uh, so I think in the end, um, you know, the, the, the focus uh, that the mortgage bankers brought to it is pretty one-sided. They're, you know, this is disrupting, there's a disruption happening in industry in general, and uh, they're not sure which way that's going, and that makes them concerned. But uh, because, uh, you know, you've got folks in political office who understand pace, who are fighting for it, and, and who uh, are persuasive on, you get, in the end, we got somewhere, we got somewhere we can all agree on. I think we've got time for, for one more question, but before I open it up, if there are any more questions, just a warning to the, the, the speakers. I'm going to start with Keith and work down for any follow, like final comments. But any, any, any questions out there? All right. Uh, with that in mind, Keith, any, any lessons you want to share or thoughts, final thoughts? I think as you consider building relationships, sometimes you can be the messenger, but it can be valuable to have a validator with you. Um, that's a role that we've played across the country for a lot of different organizations where they've said, we have a relationship. But at the end of the day, clean energy for years has been relatively partisan. Not necessarily clean energy as an industry, but clean energy as a movement. The environmental side of it, the organizations that have supported clean energy. If you look back at groups like the League of Conservation Voters, the Sierra Club, some of these groups that have typically fought for clean energy policies, they've also been out there attacking legislators on the right for years for not being supportive, right? So just because they can come and speak knowledgeably about the issue, it doesn't mean that the legislator's opinion of everything they've ever said about them over the years is going to change. And sometimes those of you who work in the industry get painted with the brush of those in the activist space who have created some of those negative opinions. So sometimes it's valuable as an industry person to say, I'm going to take a validator with me who's going to say, uh, I've done this with a solar company. I won't mention their name because I never, didn't ask them if we could, but we've worked with them and, and they, they wanted to have some meetings with legislators and they asked us if we could come in and sit down with them with the legislators. And we just were there not to provide technical knowledge. We were there to provide a validator role. And so we were there to say, we've worked with these guys. They're great. We've seen what they're doing in the community. We've seen the projects they're working on. They're good actors. They're doing a great job and they're really bringing value. And just the fact that we were there with them provided the validation that the legislator needed to feel comfortable saying, okay, I can support this because their natural mindset otherwise would have been to validate them with one of the groups that used to attack them or was still attacking them. And so think about, uh, when you think about advocating for your own, your own interests in this field, think about who has advocated for those interests in the past and the kind of taste they may have left in people's mouth and how that might reflect on you and think about what you can do to change that by bringing in a new voice or a new validator who doesn't have that same stigma attached when working with a legislator on the conservative side of the aisle or working even with grassroots to help educate them. Thank you. Michelle? And I, I second everything he said. And I look forward to working with you guys around the country. Um, I look forward to, if you guys want to work with our state chairman, I like the idea of PACE because it is non-discriminatory. It's not a left, it's not a right, it's not a Republican or a Democrat. It's available to everyone, and I think that that's great. And I think that's very appealing to people across the country. So I look forward to working with you guys. One, it's, been, it's great having this conversation. I can't tell you how much I enjoy uh, the fact that we're all here together uh, working on this. You know, you step back, and PACE has been successful because we've given people individual choices that help solve a problem that they have. Whether it's a business owner or a, a residential property owner, you, we're not trying to push an ideology. I'm not trying to convince somebody of something they do or do not believe in, regardless of where I come from on that issue. We're trying to solve a problem in a way that uh, makes our, our, our country better, our environment better, and, and helps those folks live safer, better, cheaper, cleaner lives. And a lot of what we've done over the last 10 years has been to figure out how best to do that, how to use this tool to empower individuals and communities to make choices that make sense. Um, so that part of it uh, is not ideological. It has been very successful. And as I hope, 
as we go forward and keeping that focus down on how those individual, how you make an individual, how you help an individual make a better choice uh, for them and their family, and for uh, we're going to be successful. And ultimately, the politics will fall away from that because the power of that choice uh, is is too much to deny. I, I don't know that I have that much to add, <laughs> other than I I also have really enjoyed this conversation and. Um, particularly the perspectives of, of folks that I, or I've recently met um, because Cisco has been doing this for forever and I've been doing it almost forever. But um, if I could add anything, it's that, you know, you asked uh, Cisco, what is the role of financing yeah. in all of this? And, you know, when you get very into the weeds on kind of what is PACE and what does it do, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just, it's, it's capital, it's money, um, that is coming into a set of activities and priorities that a lot of other folks are, are interested in. There are many conversations I have with building owners, uh, candidly, when energy savings never even are discussed. Um, they may just have a, a need, a problem. As Cisco said, they have something that's breaking and they have a tenant who is uncomfortable and they need to solve that problem. So um, I have always seen um, PACE as something that's additive to the priorities of a lot of stakeholders in the energy efficiency space and renewable energy and jobs and construction, in addition to having a validator and having folks help us to get this done at the state level. And this is still happening in many states right now, in Pennsylvania and other places where there are bipartisan PACE bills that are, that are moving their way through. Um, what we all have to remember is that PACE will thrive even more in states where there are other policies that support clean energy and, and energy efficiency and, and so on and so forth. So getting the financial incentives fine-tuned for everyone to buy into energy efficiency and clean energy technologies is, is as important as having pace there to then put the money behind all of those folks that then want to kind of we'll implement right. um, all of those technologies and services. So um, that's what we have to work together to, to accomplish. First of all, thank you, uh, fantastic panel. But I want to put a challenge to each of you in the audience, both sitting in the room today and those listening through the podcast. Uh, and I think you've heard it loud and clear from, from this conversation that your voices are incredibly powerful here. And so you've got to figure out how do you get involved? How can you bring your voice to the table? You don't need to be a policy expert on whatever bill is moving through your local municipality or through Congress. You just need to bring your voice. And so challenge you to make sure you pay attention to what's happening at, at Pace Nation. There, if there's lobbying days you need to take a part of, if you have a chance to meet with a local legislature, the simplest thing is, the, is that meeting, building that relationship. To take it to the next step, if you own or manage or finance projects, great, great uh, initiative for your summer interns is literally going through by zip code and figuring out who represents those projects. Why does that matter? Because if you need to influence that member, you can go in and have a conversation about a project in their community that used PACE or used whatever you're advocating for in this space. So th simple things you can do to make a big difference. And I think if we continue this fight and continue this momentum, you know, we're going to be back next year continuing to talk about the growth in this space. And for those listening online, thank you for joining the podcast. For folks who've never... Uh, who are in the room, you can go to Experts Only, which is at cleancapital.com to learn more and, and listen to other episodes. Uh, I'd like to thank the staff for helping to organize this. It's been a, a great conversation. And you know, we, we look forward to continuing this conversation uh, well into the future. So thank you. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.